Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We get the latest news on COVID booster shots and Canada's travel advisory. Indwell wants to buy Delta High School and turn it into affordable housing. The NDP has some ideas on creating more affordable homes in this province. What stocking stuffers should the Ontario government give to taxpayers? The Salvation Army has reached the midway point of its Christmas kennel campaign. And James Hinchcliffe says goodbye to IndyCar. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as we know, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 is definitely on track to become the dominant strain here in Ontario before the end of the year, which is not too far away. Earlier this week, Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. Kieran Moore said Omicron makes up 30% of new daily infections with cases doubling every three days. So we will ask our next guest, Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid, what he thinks about this. Dr. Khalid is a health policy expert and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Dr. Khalid. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So are you concerned about Omicron's rapid infection rate? I am concerned. However, we knew this was going to be this going to happen. When we look at South Africa and the rates that came out of there, we knew that the virus was going to be highly transmissible. I think what we're not what we didn't expect is the speed of how fast it's happening. So as we look at the numbers that are happening in the past few days, we see that the Omicron case count is doubling and it's likely that Omicron will uh, become the most dominant variant over Delta in Ontario. Did this happen quicker than Delta? You know, I'm trying to rack my brain. You know, Delta seemed to come on and we were all kind of fearful on how rapidly it was spreading. This seems to be even faster than that. Correct. It is faster. And the thing is that people need to understand is that there's a lag time. So what I mean by that is that, you know, we're only getting the data after people get tested by a couple of days. So there's always a lag time of when we actually know the the accurate case number of Omicron as opposed to like the current situation. So think about yourself, you know, you go get tested, you're not getting the results immediately, right? Like it could take 24 to 48 hours. And then it makes its way for us to know the total case number. What I'm trying to say here is that we actually anticipate the numbers to be much higher than they're being reported. Wow. I read a study that looked at Omicron cases in South Africa, and it showed that Pfizer's vaccine had a, I think it was a 30 or 33 percent efficacy against Omicron infections, which is extremely low. However, it is 70 percent effective against hospitalizations. So does this offer further proof that while Omicron is much more transmissible than the Delta variant, uh, it isn't as severe? Can we make that conclusion or at least get a little bit closer to that conclusion? That's a great point you make. And, and yes, we can make that conclusion based on the early preliminary data. I mean, a lot of that data hasn't been peer reviewed and hasn't been verified yet. But however, the data does say that uh, the virus, Omicron virus, is highly transmissible, but doesn't seem to be causing worse symptoms or worse health outcomes for doubly vaccinated individuals. However, I think the issue for us here in Ontario, why is this important to us? Is because we're in a national public health care system. Our system has a limited capacity. Uh, to handle cases. And so when you have high number of case counts, and now we're seeing that there are people getting into our hospitals that are double vaccinated with Omicron, that puts a strain on already a strained system. Our healthcare providers are burnt out. It's been a very long journey with the pandemic. And so I think this is why for us in Canada, we get on the alert system because we're worried that can our system handle this massive increase in case counts without knowing exactly how it really will play out. Because as of now, 
we don't know really how bad Omicron is going to be for people who are double vaccinated. We know it's going to be bad for people who are not vaccinated, but we don't know the extent of how bad it will be for people who are double vaccinated. That's a good point. Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid is our guest, health policy expert. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, which brings me to booster shots. Uh, ramping up booster shots seems to be top of mind. Uh, you know, those 50 plus can start booking or have been booking their appointments in the new year. That's going to be ramped up to 18 plus. How important is the booster shot in slowing down this variant? It's so important that we stopped calling it the booster shot and we're almost now calling it the third shot because booster shot is giving the impression that like it's an added benefit. Now we realize from Omicron and early data that actually a third dose of the vaccine is necessary to combat the virus. I mean, the early study from South Africa that looked at Pfizer and its effectiveness being 33% is a huge indicator. Uh, and even Pfizer's CEO has come forward and said that, you know, we should be expecting increased doses over time because those variants change the nature of the virus, right? Um, and they, they change our immunity response to them. And so we need a booster shot or a third dose to help us combat them. And that's, I think the province is, is definitely going to be looking into building up mass vaccination centers to be able to accommodate for this idea of increased vaccinations and doses over time. More travel restrictions and uh, even border closures are being discussed in Canada and around the world. But is it too late at this point? I mean, Omicron is already here. We've al- always said this from the science perspective, that travel bans never work. Um, they never worked in the beginning of the pandemic. They're not going to work now. I think it's uh, we do them because we worry about uh, uh, introducing new variants into our communities. However, Omicron is here. It's all over our communities. It's no longer travel-borne. It is community-based now infection. And so that any travel bans to limit Omicron won't really make much of a difference. It's already in our community. I uh, just got about uh, 30 more seconds or so. Uh, the first COVID-19 vaccine dose in Canada was administered a year ago. Can you imagine mm. what our world would look like today if a vaccine was not yet available? Well, we, you and I would be having a very different conversation <laughs> this morning. Yes. I think, I think, and unfortunately, we have be a very sad conversation. Vaccines do work. Vaccines have saved millions of lives across the world, um, and vaccines, uh, you know, the science has proven its effectiveness so far. And so, you know, I can't even imagine what the narrative would have been if we weren't, the science didn't catch up with the pandemic and was able to create this vote, that vaccine that we know is to be safe and, and effective in saving people's lives. And so I think we need to trust the science and we need to understand that this is something that we've never dealt with before at this scale, and we're all trying to make the best sense out of it. Absolutely. Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid, thank you for joining us on the show and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting story developing here in Hamilton where there is a uh, nonprofit organization that is uh, attempting to purchase the Delta Secondary School property and convert that historic high school into affordable housing. Graham Cubitt is the Director of Projects and Development at Indwell and joins us now. Graham, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well, thanks. So why Delta High School? What's the appeal of this uh, heritage site? Well, it is such a beautiful building, first of all, and it's sitting there empty, holding so much potential for housing conversion. And so Indwell has a lot of experience taking old buildings and adaptively reusing them into new housing and affordable housing specifically. And so we thought, well, you know, this is a large site and uh, it's right down the street from our office. So let's give it a shot. So um, knowing, of course, that we wouldn't be uh, able to pull off the whole thing. So we uh, have in mind a number of partners to work together on a, a really compelling community project. Yeah. So who else is stepping up to the table with you? 
Well, formally so far, the Hamilton Community Foundation has gotten behind the idea uh, to provide financing. So they helped us, uh, you know, make sure we had the down payment. Um, we had to put 10% down and then uh, lined up the financing for a purchase if we're successful. Um, there are a number of other community uh, uh, housing providers, uh, other arts and recreation type uh, organizations that want to be a part of it, but just couldn't get, uh, you know, couldn't get everything that they needed together in this very short time frame that the school board had for offers. So uh, in the next few weeks, the next few months, if we're successful with the offer, uh, all of those groups will be uh, excited to line up with us and really lean into this into this challenge. As you know, you're in very good hands with uh, Terry Cook and uh, Hamilton Community Foundation. They've done some uh, wonderful things in this community. So uh, looking forward to uh, that partnership really bearing some fruit. Uh, but talk about the bidding process, because there's other, uh, I, I guess, groups or entities who are interested in purchasing this property as well, right? Yeah, for sure. So the school board has to put out property that, uh, you know, there's a list of folks who can buy it, the city being one of them, other organizations, colleges, etc. They went through that list and nobody put up their hand. So it went out to the community. They put out a request for offers. Um, it was pretty simple offer. You had to put in how much you wanted to pay. And uh, that was pretty much it. Um, we said, well, we believe the property is worth this as fair market value. They have to seek fair market value according to the act. Uh, so we had a professional appraisal done by a Hamilton appraiser. Uh, we looked at the cost of the asbestos re- re- abatement and uh, factored that in. And then we offered a, a pretty good size premium over what that what that number came out to. Um, because we believe it does, you know, the school board does need the money to build new schools. But uh, at the same time, this is a hundred year public asset uh, that we believe should be turned back into public, you know, into a public asset. So as a charity, uh, you know, all of our all of our money, all of our resources are in the public trust. You know, people donate money to us. We use government funds. Uh, we invest, you know, uh, mortgages, et cetera. But it's all towards the public benefit. So how can we use this uh, this school or at least a large portion of it for affordable rental housing? But there's also an opportunity to build market uh, or affordable for sale housing. So people to buy into Hamilton's housing market right now are really struggling especially a lot of younger people who live and work in Hamilton. You know, our wages haven't caught up to uh, some places else in the GTA, but our housing prices are catching up fast. And so how can we make an opportunity here for people who want to buy into an affordable home as well? Graham Cubitt is our guest, Director of Projects and Development at Indwell. We're chatting about uh, their efforts to uh, buy Delta Secondary High School, which was built in 1924, has been shuttered for the past couple of years as the uh, public school board moved on to uh, other schools, um, most notably Bernie Custis. Uh, In terms of um, what this thing is going to look like, do you have any specs or ideas or pie-in-the-sky kind of visions of uh, what these uh, units are going to look like? Sure. Well, the the building is heritage designated, so that does put a little bit of a crimp on how much can be done to the exterior. So the whole building exterior is uh, is designated. Even the sidewalks that lead up to the front door are part of the heritage designation. The uh, green space in the back is heritage protected, uh, as is the front lawn. Um, But there's also a large auditorium, uh, I believe 600 seat auditorium in the middle of the building. There's double gymnasiums, two of them actually. Um, And those are you know, part of our vision. How can we actually keep those amazing public assets, which have used, you know, served the community for years, keep them anchoring the center of this community and then transform the existing school building all around it into a a variety of apartments and and condos, um, rental and uh, and ownership. 
as well as even potentially some mixed use, uh, you know, mixed use uses in there. Can we have some professional offices? You know, there's a the idea that maybe the community needs a doctor's office. You know, as the LRT comes through, the, the community is going to grow. And so we're going to need more services. What about a daycare? You know, with the national daycare plan that, you know, could be in the works. Does this community have enough childcare spaces? There's all these ideas that people have asked us uh, since, you know, since the, our interest came, uh, came out. Uh, they're like, can you get one of these in our community? And then people are excited to just still have the opportunity. You know what? One person said, all my kids learned to ride their bike there. Um, you know, in the parking lots, in the in the playground, you know, can that can some of those amenities stay? Because as a neighborhood, we use that. So, we we see the building in many respects looking like it does, but being totally transformed inside. Uh, while those big public assets, the gymnasiums, the auditoriums, the uh, the spaces that we can never create again. Uh, those those live on for another hundred years. Before we let you go, we got about uh, a minute here. Uh, if if this goes through, uh, do we have a timeline on when it could eventually open up to uh, people moving in? Well, the school board has ninety days to review the offers. Uh, if we're successful, uh, we want to hit the ground running. We're action oriented. We know that the housing crisis is real for a lot of people, so we would love to see you know something happening within a year uh, on site there. Wow. Exciting stuff. Graham, thanks for the time. Good luck with the bid and uh, the project itself, if it does come to be. Thanks for having me, Rick. Graham Cubitt, uh, Director of Projects and Development at Indwell, as they uh, strive to uh, purchase Delta High School and turn it into affordable housing, which is an exciting project. Beautiful building, uh, and uh, probably even more beautiful inside once all those units are built and retaining the gym and whatnot. Uh, exciting project on the go. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. On to other news in terms of our housing affordability. This is one of the hot topics in the lands, not only here, in Hamilton, but really uh, across the country. And uh, we were hoping to see uh, what would happen yesterday with the uh, Ontario Housing Summits that Premier Doug Ford had organized with his housing minister and some of the big city mayors uh, to develop some plans to tackle this crisis. And, and it is a crisis because housing prices have gone through the roof and there doesn't seem to be a lot of answers. Uh, however, there is some recommendations coming from the NDP and the housing critic for the New Democrats and MPP for University of Rosedale is Jessica Bell and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you have five immediate actions that uh, can help address the housing crisis and really some recommendations for uh, Premier Ford and uh, and the gang. Uh, what do you think should happen here? We do have an affordable housing crisis. It's spilled out from the 416 to the entirety of Southern Ontario. The big measures we are asking the government to take right now are to bring in real rent control. So 30% of the people in Ontario who rent can have stable and affordable rent. That is our big uh, takeaway. And the second big piece is that we really need to get a handle on the speculation, which is the primary reason why we are seeing housing prices skyrocket to levels that only the wealthiest can now afford. It is critical that we move forward with sensible taxation measures focused purely on investors and people who are leaving homes vacant in order to allow those first-time home buyers who are desperately sitting on the uh, sidelines to win that bid and get their forever home and really build their life in a community they want to live in. That's so the goal here. Would this be a vacant home tax or a foreign buyer's tax? Is that one and the same? 
Uh, I'm, I'm happy to uh, elaborate. There are three specific taxation measures that we are proposing. First, an annual speculation tax on people who do not pay the majority of their taxes in Ontario. There are some regions in on, uh, Ontario where you'll have a student saying they earn $15,000, $20,000 a year, but they're living in a recently purchased $4 million home. We need to make sure that there are taxation measures in place to ensure everyone pays their fair share of taxes. Uh, the second piece is a vacant homes tax, an annual vacant homes tax. The OECD just estimated that Canada has 1.3 million vacant homes. Just to calculate that, that's about five vacant homes for every person experiencing homelessness in Canada today. It is critical that we introduce taxation measures to encourage these investors to either sell that home, rent it out to a long-term renter, or dedicate an annual amount of money that can go to building affordable housing. That is a very useful and uh, strategic way to address our housing affordability crisis. It increases housing supply, and it also allows us to build homes for people that are never going to be uh, provided with a home by the private market and will need government to step in and really help them get their feet under them. We have about a minute with uh, Jessica Bell, housing critic for the NDP. Some of the other calls to action uh, include changing zoning rules to allow for more affordable housing and uh, commit to building a lot more homes in this province. What about the red tape uh, part of it? Because municipalities are really handcuffed in terms of building more homes. There's a long waiting list. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, we need to put this uh, the issue of supply in the bigger picture. Uh, housing supply and building new housing supply is important. However, uh, it is important that we build the right kind of housing supply. The Ford government has a tendency to uh, encourage developers to build 600 square foot condos, micro condos, uh, that no one with a family can, can easily live in, or 4,000 square foot McMansion homes on the Greenbelt or precious farmland. We're talking urban sprawl here. These are not the kind of affordable homes that first-time homebuyers, uh, renters uh, need. What we are advocating for uh, is zoning reform, sensible zoning reform, into, into encouraging these missing middle homes, these townhomes, these duplexes, these triplexes in existing neighbourhoods. Typically, uh, these homes are upwards of $500,000 cheaper to buy, and they have enough square footage for a family to live in. It's also cheaper for municipalities to service these homes because uh, the, in, um, the infrastructure uh, already exists. They just need to expand it. You're talking maybe $1,200 uh, to service a new home in an existing municipality versus upwards of four dollars to $5,000 to service a, a McMansion in a, in a new subdivision. So it's, it's actually about economics too. Absolutely. Jessica, really appreciate the time. Wish we had a little bit more with you, but uh, I, I uh, thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of your day as well. Thank you so much for having me. It is such an important issue and I'm pleased that your radio station, I mean your TV station cares about it. Thank you very much. Jessica Bell, housing critic for the NDP and MPP for University Rosedale in the Toronto area. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation has released a taxpayer holiday wish list for Premier Doug Ford. And with that comes some stocking stuffer ideas that are apparently directly from the PC's election platform. Here to explain is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Ontario Director, Jay Goldberg. Jay, good morning. Welcome back to the show. 
Good morning. Great to be with you. You got uh, four uh, stocking stuffers. We'll get to them uh, one by one here, including uh, laying out a plan to balance the budget. Where are we in Ontario in terms of balancing the budget? Well, we're a long ways away. Uh, the deficit is expected to be quite big this year, $21.5 billion, which is one of the largest deficits in the history of the province. And, uh, you know, what we're saying is it's important for Premier Ford, as he promised to do during the campaign, to lay out a plan to get back to balance. You know, nobody's saying we have to balance the budget tomorrow uh, or even next year as we continue to face some pandemic challenges. But it's really important to have a plan how to get there. Uh, we haven't balanced the budget in Ontario in 16 years, uh, and we definitely need a roadmap for how to get there going forward. And it sounds like uh, with the emergence of the Omicron variants, there might be um, some COVID supports that might throw more money into the pot. Yeah, so it's really important to distinguish and for the government to distinguish between temporary COVID spending and permanent spending that's going to add to the deficit. Uh, the Ford government, for example, uh, they've increased spending across the board in practically every ministry. Uh, I was preparing a pre-budget submission for the Ontario Finance Ministry, uh, and what I was showing in the document is that even if we were to allow the health care and long-term care spending to increase the way the government has, if we return spending in other ministries, um, you know, uh, all kinds of other ministries, whether it's justice, whether it's consumer and government services. If you return spending just to where it was before the pandemic, we could cut the deficit down by over $10 billion. So it shows you that a lot of the spending uh, is not COVID-related directly, uh, and I think that's what the government needs to tackle going forward. Now, the call is to cut the gas tax. There's been uh, the, the, there was a lot of you know smoke and mirrors during the election campaign way back when on cutting gas tax and, and gas prices. We haven't really seen that, though. No. And, you know, now's the time because we've seen over the last couple of months really record high gas prices. We've seen inflation and the cost of living going up. And so people uh, in the middle class and those with lower incomes and minimum wage Seniors on fixed incomes, they're facing really clear challenges with inflation. So one way to try to help them out is to leave more money in their pockets, whether that's at the gas station, whether that's um, through implementing the income tax cut that uh, Doug Ford promised in the last election. Uh, So we absolutely think that that needs to happen. Uh, Premier Ford has said by the end of March he will cut the gas tax. But we're saying, you know, there's no need to wait. We already have a deficit this year that's going to be quite large. Uh, the Ford government should enact the, the cut now, and it would really help families immediately. Canadian Taxpayers Federation releasing a taxpayer holiday wish list, and we're chatting with CTF Ontario Director Jay Goldberg here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Another of the stocking stuffers, so to speak, is ending political and corporate welfare. Is that just not the cost of doing business, though? Well, it's it's not, and again, this is something that uh, Ford promised in the last election that he would do. So, for example, we're giving $16 million this year uh, to political parties here in Ontario to spend on whatever they want, whether it's lawn signs or attack ads that make you want to throw your television out the window during the election. We're spending $16 million on that. Now, Doug Ford promised he would get rid of political welfare, They've already gotten rid of it at the federal level. In fact, Stephen Harper did it about 10 years ago. Uh, The parties are still raising a record amount of money. They're fighting elections. 
they're doing just fine. So it's time to get off of the taxpayer dole here with political parties. There is absolutely no reason why we should be giving political parties money, uh, you know, just to spend frivolously. And Doug Ford said as much in the last election. He said, uh, you know, people don't want to see their money in the pockets of political parties. He was right then, and I think what we need to see is the old Doug Ford make a return to Queen's Park. Lastly, and I think everyone will raise their hand to say, yeah, I'm in favor of this, cut income taxes. Yeah, so this is, again, something that Ford promised in the last election, uh, the second income tax bracket to be lowered by 20%. This would deliver savings of up to $850 to individual taxpayers. So that's huge, and we've got to keep in mind we're facing uh, very significant inflation, higher cost of living, grocery prices are going up. And so the best way to help people is not to increase government spending because that's, you know, fueling inflation. The best thing to do is leave more money in people's pockets so they can afford to get the basic things that they need. Uh, and implementing the income tax cut is a small drop in the bucket when you compare it to all of the reckless spending that we've seen uh, in recent years in, in terms of trying to pay for it. Uh, implementing the income tax cut would lead to about $2 billion a year left in taxpayers' pockets, and we could easily pay for that by rolling back some of the COVID spending that has absolutely nothing to do with health care. A number of fine recommendations. Jay, appreciate the time. Let's hope the Premier is listening. Okay, thank you. Jay Goldberg, CTF Ontario Director, um, calling for a balanced budget, cutting gas taxes, now ending political and corporate welfare, and cutting income taxes. Amen to that one, for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's hope you're digging down deep to contribute to the Salvation Army's Christmas Kettle campaign. We're at the midway point of the campaign, and here to chat about it is Glenn Van Gulick from the Salvation Army Ontario Division. Glenn, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you. Having a good day. Uh, Yeah, we are as well, and uh, we're at the halfway point. How is it looking so far? We are. We are uh, just after the halfway point, and we're doing well, but we are still just about 50% of our goal in Hamilton, uh, raising uh, just about $400,000 we're looking to raise in Hamilton, and and we're just crossing that $200,000 mark, so we need the community support. Again, those dollars staying local to support programs and services that help individuals and families in Hamilton. So critical critical time of the of the campaign, but we know that the community Hamilton always comes out in the last eight to ten days uh, to rally and, and help us hit our goal. The uh, campaign wraps up on Christmas Eve. Do you need more volunteers at this point? We do. We always are in need of volunteers. You know, this year has uh, been especially uh, challenging, of course, you know, it's always a challenge to, to find volunteers, but, you know, with all of the, uh, with all of the restrictions and all of the con- un- uncertainty, the concerns around uh, COVID, that does present some of a challenge. But, you know, we've got great volunteers that have been doing some great work for us, keeping those kettles open and, uh, you know, of course, having an opportunity to, to wish people a Merry Christmas and bring some joy and, and hopefulness uh, to the holiday season at those kettles. But uh, always looking for more. People can uh, sign up at SalvationArmy.ca slash volunteer. And Major Lynn Cummings will get that uh, that application over to our our team in Hamilton. And you mentioned that all the money raised in Hamilton stays in the city. It does. Yeah, every dollar that's uh, deposited, donated into a kettle, or the contactless donation option. There's tip tap at each of those locations where you can tap your debit or credit card. Every dollar stays local in Hamilton to support the programs and services there. So whether that's Grace Haven, where we're supporting young parents and families. Uh, or Lawson Ministries, where adults with disabilities are being supported through critical day programs 
uh, for them. Or, you know, housing and homelessness at our Hamilton Booth Center. So many important programs um, beyond the, the food insecurity, the challenges of, of uh, you know, the winter and clothing and all of those things that we do on a day-to-day basis. All of those dollars are supporting local programs and services. Of course, you can also give online. SalvationArmy.ca, if you're shopping online, we would, of course, encourage shopping local. But SalvationArmy.ca, make a donation or call one 800 It is the season of giving, and hopefully a lot more giving comes your way. Glenn, thanks for the time today, and uh, good luck the rest of the way. Thanks so much. God bless you, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Glenn Van Gulick, Divisional Secretary for Public Relations at the Salvation Army Ontario Division. More information online, SalvationArmy.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Life is a highway sometimes. Sometimes it's a, it's a racetrack, and uh, that is uh, certainly the case for James Hinchcliffe, the great Canadian racer who is stepping away from the track. Well, at least one track. Here to explain is Eric Thomas, the host of Raceline Radio on the Raceline Radio Network, Sundays at 8 p.m. here on CHML. Eric, good morning. How are you? Good morning, RZ, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and yours. Great to be on with you again, my friend. Same with you. Yes, uh, great to chat. Um, listen, yep. J- James Hinchcliffe is, as he says, stepping away from full-time IndyCar competition, but leaving right. the door open to explore other options. What would those options be? Well, I, I think the safest path, I mean, he's leaving it open for, as you say, for a lot of options, but I think most of us are assuming that in terms of, of the racing part of it, because as, as you say, he's just backing away from full-time IndyCar involvement, more than likely doing some IMSA sports car stuff, which he has done before. He's He's been involved in some of the teams in the Rolex 24 hours of Daytona. He's done, you know, 12 hours of Sebring and a few others as well. And this is nothing unusual for IndyCar guys, because there seems to be at least the last 10 years or so, maybe more, a lot of crossover between the IndyCar guys and the sports car guys, because I mean, the car is, is drastically different. It has a roof on it for one thing. It's, you know, and it's not a single seater and you're normally, you know, in uh, around the clock endurance races with a number of other guys, but it's road course stuff and it, the tactics are more or less the same. So it translates better. So my guess would be, in terms of Hinch uh, continuing racing, it'll be some part-time stuff in IMSA sports cars. The other part of it, more than likely, and with the recent development that Paul Tracy's contract with NBC up in the booth as an analyst with Lee Diffie uh, and and the rest of the NBC crew, they're not going to renew PT's contract because PT's not done driving and they couldn't come up with a schedule that worked for everything that he wanted to do, commentate. So there's a very good chance, at least in my mind, that Hinchcliffe will plug in there because he's already done some television work for IndyCar in the pits and was terrific at it, his insight. And of course, he's, he's so personable and so eloquent that it works so well that that could translate well to the commentary booth. And I think that that will be the other half of what Hinch is planning to do. He's a very good friend of ours, a very good friend of Raceline Radio. And uh, once he knows what he's going to do, uh, we'll have a, tr- a, a, you know, a pipeline to him and let you know what that might be. Hey, he's a very personable guy and a very likable guy as well. Oh, yeah. Very popular driver on the circuit. He also lasted 10 plus years. He won, I believe it was six races. That's right. What do you make of his legacy? Well, I, I think it, it was born out of the legacy of another great Canadian driver that we lost in 1999 in Greg Moore. Mm-hmm. And Greg was a hero to a lot of guys, including Hinch. And from the time that Hinch got a, a, a go-kart from his, his late father when he was only nine 
up to trying to get into IndyCar, and he knew that's what he wanted to do from a very early age in karting. Greg Moore was the guy that he looked up to because Greg was a guy who understood, much like we saw with Lewis Hamilton when he got robbed of his championship at Abu Dhabi, he didn't have a bad word to say about anybody or anything. He just congratulated Max for stopping and withdrawing the protest, but that's another story uh, officially, uh, that no matter what happens, in the face of adversity, you come off as a professional. You don't call down anybody or anything or any official or anything like that. And Hinch really admired that about Greg Moore, and he carried that on. And one of the reasons why he's so well-liked and for most of his 10 years in IndyCar, winning those six races, as you said, RZ, is the fact that, that he was the most popular driver in that series because he was so likable. He was phenomenal with the media, phenomenal with the fans, and continues to be so. So that's his legacy. The big on-track moment, of course, was, was the fact that in, in, uh, in 2015, trying to qualify for the Indy 500 in practice in Indianapolis, had that horrible, horrible wreck where he came very, very close to dying. As a matter of fact, he flatlined twice on the gurney heading down to the operating theater at Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis. We almost lost him twice, but he came back, and not only did he come back, he won the pole for the biggest race in the business, the Indianapolis 500, exactly one year later. That'll probably be the most memorable aspect of, of Hinch's career, is the fact that here's a never-say-die guy who won some races, who was very popular, but man, you know, after almost getting killed in a race car, he jumps back in, and he wins the pole for the race that almost claimed him a year previous. So that's probably, uh, that, at least in my mind, the, bi the biggest thing I remember about Hinge. Yeah, a pretty a pretty crazy uh, year, that's for sure. And he finished, I believe, was seventh in that race. And, yeah. uh, you know, a, a guy who really put himself out there as well. I mean, he was on Dancing with the Stars. He's been that's on it. several kind of TV shows as a guest. He really, he's not afraid to, uh, you know, uh, he's a humble guy, but he's not afraid to put himself out there. No, no, and, and, and he's... You know, our, our sport is rife with guys like that that are that are very personable. And Hinch had that ability to entertain you away from the racetrack and be very eloquent and erudite on television shows. And as you see, you mentioned, you know, Dancing with the Stars. And, of course, Elio Castroneves won that championship. Mm -hmm. There's another outgoing IndyCar guy with a lot of personality that, that people remember. So, um, yeah, Hinch is not done with the sport. He's done with IndyCar and uh, – you know, uh, in, in in the capacity of a driver, at least there, you know, there's an outside chance. We had a recent conversation. You heard it here on, on Raceline Radio on CHML uh, with Michael Andretti. And of course, he did, you know, two tours of duty with Andretti Autosport. Uh, he didn't have a very good season. This one just concluded in 21. But Michael said, you know, if there was a way we could hang on to Hinch, we'd love to do that in a coaching capacity, in a consultant's capacity, much like Dario Franchitti does with Chip Ganassi Racing, a guy with a lot of experience who can bring young guys on. And of course, Hinch's car at Andretti is going to be taken over by another Canadian driver, uh, the very young Devlin DeFrancesco out of Toronto. Uh, so that would be a good coaching situation. So maybe that's going to be part of what Hinch does going forward is in a, a coaching or a consultancy or even a managing capacity. I can see James doing, you know, managing a number of drivers, Canadian drivers. He's he's called us up and said, I got a young kid who in, uh, in USF 2000 or some other series, one of the sub series, the learning series on the road to Indy. Would you do an interview with him? And I, of course I will, because we're always on the show, as you know, um, on the lookout for developing talent, especially if it's Canadian. So I could see Hinch be involved in, in that capacity as well. He definitely has, you know, at age 34, still has a lot of options in front of him, oh, yeah. and it's going to be fun to watch uh, his development, sure. uh, whether it's TV or uh, another kind of track. Eric, appreciate the time, uh, and enjoy the holidays. Merry Christmas. 
Will do. Thank you, my friend. Uh, you guys are certainly CHML, a huge part of what we do. I haven't been inside your building in about two years <laughs> because of COVID. Now with the numbers flaring, I was looking forward to maybe doing that in the spring. I know we'll keep in touch. We're into our four best of uh, shows over Christmas and New Year's. Rick, thanks so much. You guys are a tremendous, tremendous affiliate of ours, our co-flagship station. Couldn't do this without you and uh, and and all the operators uh, along the network and certainly at CHML. Thank you so much, my friend. Always good to be on with you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we'll chat again soon. You got it. Thanks, E.T. Eric Thomas, host of Raceline Radio on the Raceline Radio Network. You can hear it Sundays at 8 p.m. right here on 900 CHML. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.